Okay, is everybody there? Galatians, did you find that? Yeah. You found it? Sebastian, are you there? Yeah, I don't see you. It looks to me like you're eating Hershey's Kisses, buddy. Okay. Galatians chapter 3. And uh, I've got a, I've put, uh, there we go. What you see there on the screen are the various missionary journeys of Paul, right? And so you can probably orient yourself to that map. Um, Jerusalem, of course, is down in the bottom right-hand corner. This was Syria, also referred to the Romans as Palestine, right? So here's Jerusalem. And Paul's first missionary journey goes like this. Up here to Antioch, out over here to Pamphylia, into these churches here. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then finally back to Jerusalem. So these are the churches. You, see, you can see here Galatia. Right, that's central Turkey. This is the area that Paul was writing to. Let me come over here and show you all so you can see it. So here's Galatia, of course. These are the churches Antioch and Pisidia as opposed to Antioch and Syria, which is here. Uh, Lystra, Iconium, Derby. So here's what Paul did. He went up to Antioch, over to Cyprus, up through central Galatia, over to Antioch, and finally back to Jerusalem. So that's Paul's first of three or four missionary journeys. You would say four if you count his fourth journey to Rome, which was an involuntary journey that was his last ever. But this will give you a good feel for the shape of where Paul was going and where Paul was writing to. Uh, a little bit later this year, uh, I will be leading a tour uh, throughout the coastal region of Greece, and then out. we'll spend some time in Patmos, and then we'll head over to Italy. So if you have an interest in that, let me know. It's going to be great. We have a maximum of 100 people, and we'd love to take you what we call in the footsteps of Paul, where we go through Paul's journeys here and then finally Paul's demise in Rome. And then God willing, sometime next year, we'll do a tour through Turkey where we'll do not only the seven churches, but also the area uh, in and around Tarsus and Galatia. So it's gonna be great. So let's remind ourselves of where we've come from and where we're going. Paul is writing the first of his letters uh, in probably about AD 49, not earlier than AD 48, not later than AD 50. And Paul has already spent considerable time in Galatia, probably a year, maybe as much as 15 months. He has left Galatia and word has gotten to him that people have come in behind him in his wake and they are suggesting that Paul's apostleship is illegitimate, that his understanding of Torah is incorrect, that he is uh, fundamentally mistaken in many important regards. And so the rumor of this, or the report of this, has gotten back to Paul, and so Paul has written back into those churches, into those situations. And that's what we have in the letter to the Galatians. Um, in chapter 1, we spent time looking at Paul's defense of his apostleship and of the legitimacy of his ministry. He tells us that he actually traveled down into Arabia and, in fact, was not a lackey for those in Jerusalem or anything like that. In Galatians chapter 2, which is where we were the last time, Paul tells the story of what took place in Antioch. Now again, not Antioch in Galatia or Pisidia, but Antioch here. This, this Antioch here uh, is the very, right, just there north of Jerusalem, is the very first place where a non-Jewish, primarily Gentile congregation of followers of Jesus was planted. And they referred to them as Christians there because they couldn't call them Jews because they were Gentile believers. And Barnabas had been sent up to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Antioch, when Barnabas arrived in Antioch and saw all of these non-Jewish believers, he immediately instinctively went just here over to Tarsus, recovered Saul, and then brought him back to Antioch, and that was really the beginning of Paul's ministry in earnest, right? So did everybody get that here? So he was here, 
He goes over, gets Saul, brings him back to Antioch. So something happened while Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Antioch. And the thing that happened was Peter had come from Jerusalem. Peter's ministry was largely centered in and around Jerusalem. Paul's in the greater Mediterranean world. But this is at the very outset of Paul's ministry. Paul's basically a nobody at this point. He's a bench player. He's a role player. Nobody really knows who Paul is. He's not like Peter, right, who walked on water and who was a disciple of Jesus, etc. And so what, what ended up happening there was when the... Uh, uh, church in Antioch was planted, they had not only Jewish participants, but non-Jewish participants. And when Peter arrived, he saw something that he had really been unprepared for, uh, but he had experienced it to some degree in, with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. And that was that the Jews and the Gentiles were eating together, they were mingling together, they were spending time together. And uh, Peter just went right along with the program, no problem. Right up until the point that some heavy sevies, we talked about them last week, the heavy sevies showed up from Jerusalem, and as soon as the Jews from Jerusalem and James arrived, Peter separated himself, excused himself politely, went over and sat with the Jews, began to speak, no doubt, in the Aramaic language. All the other Jews followed Peter's bad example. He was a thermostat rather than a thermometer, setting a tone, an unfortunate tone. And so Paul looks up and sees his precious, beloved church there, a small church, probably no larger than the church we have here today, uh, not more than 100 members at the absolute uppermost and maybe as few as 40. And he looks up and he sees all the Jews sitting in one area and all the Gentiles sitting in another area, all the Jews speaking a language that the Gentiles do not understand. And he immediately rebukes Peter, not so that he can write to the church in Galatia and throw Peter under the bus and somehow undermine Peter's apostleship, but because what Peter had done was illustrative it was representative of the very thing that the gospel came to undo. The gospel came to undo division and fragmentation and an us and them view of the world. And when Paul looked up and he saw all the Jews sitting over here and all the Gentiles over here, he rebuked Peter. And uh, we spent a significant time on that the last time we were together. He looked at the importance of this word here, the word pistis. Does anybody remember what that word means? It means faith. Faith or faithfulness, and we're going to encounter this word in a very important way today. Okay, very important. And so without further ado, let's just, our final, final uh, slide here for review. Where are we up to so far in Galatians? Well, basically we're asking this question. These are the questions that Paul is writing into, the context with which he was concerned, and they are basically three. And I've just put two of them up here, and we'll introduce the third in a moment. Uh, number one is, how does one get access to the table of God? So the eating... The, the actual literal eating that was taking place there in the fellowship hall in Antioch was representative of something larger, some bigger thing that was taking place. And the question was, how do we get access to the table of God or how do we become a member of God's family? Is, there's the, or is it the case that there's sort of this bifurcation of the family of God, that there's those that are not really in but kind of in and those that are especially in? And that was the concern that Paul had, that the, the implicit or even the explicit message among the Jews in Antioch, when they all gathered together in response to Peter's bad example, was if you want to be members of the family of God, if you want access to the cool kids table, you have to keep Torah. You have to participate in the various injunctions of Torah. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And as you might have guessed, a central figure in all of this, and he comes up big time in chapter three, is Abraham. Abraham occurs over and over and over again, four times in this chapter. And that's really at the heart of the controversy that Paul is writing into who exactly is the family of Abraham and what constitutes the family of Abraham. So with that in mind, 
Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 and pick it up beginning in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Literally, the Greek here is who has cast a spell on you? Right? Like, you, your mind has been changed. It's been switched. You have, you have diverted from what you knew to be right when I was just there with you a year or so ago. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Okay? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you was crucified. Whoa, 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 whoa. How's that possible? Let me just remind you. I'll just put it up here on the screen just in case you'd forgotten. So Paul is writing to churches in central Turkey. I'll ask you a quick question here. Was Jesus crucified in central Turkey? Now, where was Jesus crucified on that map? Yeah, right way down here. Like hundreds of miles away from the church that Paul is writing to. So how can Paul say to the church in Galatia, Hey, guys, ladies... Who cast a spell on you? How is it possible that you could have departed from obeying the truth that you heard communicated clearly and powerfully in me before whose eyes Jesus Christ was set forth among you as crucified? What does he mean by that? In what sense can Paul say, straight-facedly, that Jesus was, you saw Jesus crucified? Well, I suppose one option would be that every single person to whom Paul is writing had actually been in Jerusalem over the Passover weekend, but that seems highly unlikely, particularly with regards to the fact that many of these people weren't even Jews to whom Paul is writing. So, does anybody have a guess? How can Paul say, then, in verse 2, the latter part of verse 1, excuse me, um, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Yeah, that's exactly right. Under the preaching of the Holy Reiner said the Holy Spirit, under the preaching and power of the Holy Spirit, with the, with the preaching of Paul and the outpouring of miracles and the Spirit and whatever happened in Paul's initial ministry there in Galatia, we see some of that in Acts 13 and 14. These people were convinced, they were persuaded, like probably you have been as well at some point in your life. Some preachers preached a powerful sermon and he made a strong appeal or she made a strong appeal and you just felt in your soul that God was speaking to you personally and this was a message for you and you were under conviction and you responded, right? That's the work of the Spirit. That's what Paul is referencing here. He says, man, when I preached, I know that the Spirit of God did His work because I saw the fruit of the Spirit among you. Verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit when I initially visited um, by the works of Torah. Now, every single time I see the word law, I'm reading from the New King James Version, I'm going to insert the word Torah, because when Paul speaks about the word law, he doesn't mean narrowly the Ten Commandments, he means Torah, particularly the writings of Moses, but really the, the entire Old Testament. So he says, I got a question for you. This is what I want to learn from you. When I came and I preached my heart out and you received the Holy Spirit, was that through the works of Torah or by hearing and believing? Now, your translation says the hearing of faith, but it's literally hearing and justice. By hearing and believing. Now, what's the implied answer here? How did they receive the Spirit? By the works of Torah? Or by hearing and believing? By hearing and believing. Very good. Now, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Remember, Paul is writing with tremendous pastoral urgency. There is frustration. There is antagonism toward Paul, toward his ministry. And Paul is primarily concerned here in an insecure sense with, hey, I want you guys to think I'm really something special. He's concerned that the undermining of the legitimacy of Paul's ministry and of his apostleship and of his teaching is actually going to lead them to follow what he says in Galatians 1 is another gospel. That's what he's really concerned about. Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun in the what, everyone? Spirit. Spirit. Are you now going to be made perfect? A better word for perfect there is complete. Are you going to be finished off? 
by works, right? Are you going to be finished off by the flesh? Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain? Now, Paul here is obviously writing into a circumstance where he knows the names of these people, the situations of these people, the circumstances of these people. Many, no doubt, in following Jesus had been kicked out of their homes or their communities or other situations. And Paul is familiar with these situations and circumstances. And he says, I know you, I know your names, and I know that you've suffered many things. Was it in vain that you suffered these things? Verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you... Now, there's a little... I don't want to get lost in this controversy, but in my translation, New King James, where it says, He there, you'll notice it's capitalized. A lot of the modern translations don't capitalize that. It's a little unclear. It's a little unclear whether or not Paul is referencing God here, like he that supplies the Spirit to you is God, or does he mean those people that have come in after me and they're telling you how to take your faith to the next level. And so it's not really important for our purposes here. But he says in verse 4, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of Torah or by the hearing of faith? And what's the implied answer there? Very good. Excellent, Sebastian. By the hearing of faith. By hearing and believing. How old is Sebastian? Oh, it's Adrian is five. Oh, Adrian. I keep saying Sebastian. Adrian is five. So if the five-year-old can get it, you all can get it. No question. Adrian. I don't know why I was saying Sebastian. Okay, now we're into verse... Now we're all the way back up here with Abraham. And take a look at verse 6. So... Verses 1 to 5 is basically Paul sort of calling them out and reminding them of his journey there, reminding them of their convictions, and now we're into the meat. Verse 6, just as, who is it everyone? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so Abraham is an absolutely central figure uh, in the book of Galatians because he's a central figure in the New Testament and he's a central figure, of course, in the Old Testament. And so we're going to try and get our minds wrapped around uh, this passage. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, I put it on the screen here for you, so I can underline the operative words here, the most important words. Just as Abraham, what's our first word that's underlined? Believed God, and it was, what's our second word? Accounted, Accounted to him for, third word? Righteousness. Righteousness. Now he's quoting here, he's quoting here from Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, and you may not be aware, you might be aware, that Genesis chapter 15 is the very passage where God makes a covenant with Abraham. This is the very passage. So in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. In Genesis 13, he sort of continues the promise and Abraham travels to Egypt. In Genesis chapter 14, you might remember Lot is kidnapped and this guy named Melchizedek shows up. And then when we get to Genesis 15, we have the resumption of the initial promise that was made to Abraham. And not just the promise, but the covenant act Right? The killing of these animals and the bifurcating of these animals. And there's this elaborate covenant ceremony that took place. We're not going to go into it right here. But that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 15. Okay, now watch this. Then he, he being Yahweh, God, then God brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Abraham, listen to me. Look now toward the heaven. Count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to me, so shall your, what's the word everyone? Descendants be. And here's Abraham's response. And he, what's our word? Believed in Yahweh and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So God makes a promise to Abraham. The essence of that promise is, I'm going to give you land and descendants. I'm going to give you an area, I'm going to give you real estate, I'm going to give you land, and then I will give you descendants. Your sons and your sons' sons and your sons' sons' sons to occupy that land and to fill that land, which was a very 
um, attractive promise, particularly in the times in which Abraham was living. Abraham has left the area of Mesopotamia. He has gone out in response to this very invitation from God. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now Yahweh had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. By the way, implicit in this call of God to Abraham is leaving not only a geographical area, it's leaving the deities associated with that geography. In the times of, in ancient times, there were gods that were regional, and they lived between these rivers, or on the top of that mountain, or in this valley. And so when God invites Abraham to leave his land, he's not just saying relocate in terms of real estate or geography, he's saying come out of that way of doing life. And by the way, the, the etymology of the word Hebrew Abraham was a Hebrew. Many believe that that comes from the, the very idea. It's related to the, to the Hebrew word for crossing over. And the idea was that Abraham crossed over the Euphrates River and left the Ur of the Chaldees and went westward. Okay, so he's traveling west. And so the promise here is, come on out, I'll give you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. This is the promise of Yahweh to Abram. Now, just quickly, I'm going to say this, and I'll race right by it. When God is initially making these promises to Abram, Abraham does not have, as you and I now have today, a robust understanding of monotheism. Monotheism. There's only one God, and he's the true God, he's the creator God. And Abraham lives in a polytheistic world, whereas I've already said, the gods were geographically located and located among people, people groups and families and clans. So, Yahweh is one God among many. And Abraham is now casting his lot, not with his ancestral, not with the God of his ancestors, but with a new God, Yahweh. Now, over time, Abraham and his descendants will come to believe and understand that he's the only God, the one true God. But at this point, his early understanding and faith in Yahweh is just that he's a God that's made a promise. And that promise is, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And right up to this point, this would all sound like unabashed favoritism, right? Like, I'm gonna, you're special, and you're amazing, and you're awesome, and I'm going to do great stuff for you, except for this last clause here, this last sentence, and I'll put it up on the screen now. And in you, all the families, or the word can be translated, nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed. Now, that's the first little hint, the first little embryonic hint that Yahweh is not a mere parochial or regional deity, that there is some global, inclusive aspect to Yahweh. In you, Abraham, all the nations, all the tribes and families of the earth will be blessed. So God is going to do something not only to, but through Abraham. And the promise boils down essentially to these two basic ideas, land and descendants. So we just read that a moment ago. God brings him outside and says, look to the stars of the sky, see if you can count them. So will your descendants be, land and descendants. Land and descendants, just very briefly. The promise of land and descendants is simply a recapitulation of the initial Edenic promise, which was where God gave Adam and Eve land and said what to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Land and descendants. Land and descendants. By the way, you see the recapitulation of that promise in the experience of Noah. God gave Noah, the whole earth was underwater, just as it had been in creation. When the water subsided and the dry land came out, what's the first thing that God says to Noah when he comes off the ark? 
be fruitful and multiply. So the promise always was land and descendants. Land and descendants. Let's modify that. Land and godly descendants. Goodly productive land and godly descendants. That was the promise in Eden. That was the promise with Noah. And so we should not be surprised that here, just in Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 14, and 15, that promise is being revisited. Land and godly descendants. Okay, so far so good, everyone? Now, God says, I'm going to do this, and 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 I'm going to do this. And what was Abram's response to the promises of Yahweh? He believed. And then God counted that as righteousness. righteousness. Okay, so that verse right there, you could make the case that Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, is the most important verse in the Old Testament. It certainly is in the top five. And it might be the very most important verse in the entire Old Testament, particularly if we gauge the importance of Old Testament verses by how often New Testament writers refer to it. So this idea becomes absolutely crucial, pivotal, normative. Abraham, say it with me one more time, I want this just embedded in your soul. Abraham what? Believed God and it was what? Counted to him as what? Righteousness. Okay, so Abraham, excuse me, Paul quotes that. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Because he's asking all these, you know, sort of provocative questions like, hey, how did you get the Holy Spirit? Did you get the Holy Spirit by the works of Torah or by hearing and believing? And then he says, how did Abraham get it? How did Abraham receive the promise and the blessing? Then he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we're in verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. Fascinating. Okay, Those that are of faith, those that believe, are the descendants of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God... What's another word? Give me a synonym for for foreseeing. And scripture... What's that? Predicting. Very good. Foretelling. Anybody else? What's that? What's that? Prophesying. Prophesying. Excellent. Uh, anticipating. All of these are great words. So let's, let's insert some of those words there. Scripture anticipating. Scripture foretelling that God would... What are the next three words? Justify the Gentiles. The non-Jewish peoples. Now I'm just going to ask you one quick question. Well, let me read the rest of that verse and then I'll ask you the question because you might give me the right answer. And Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, faith preached the gospel to who? Abraham. Preached the good news to Abraham beforehand saying what? In you all the nations of the earth will be... Where's he quoting from? He's quoting from Genesis 12. So, so here's what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying that God always only had one plan, one promise. And that plan and promise was that God was going to, as it were, put the world back together. By the way, just briefly, remember that Genesis 12 falls hard on the heels of Genesis 11. What happened in Genesis 11? Does anybody remember? The Tower of Babel. And what happened in the Tower of Babel? Confusing of the tongues. And what did the confusing of the tongues result in? Separation. Separation, separate nations, divisions, geographical, linguistic. So we see dispersion and division in Genesis 11. And then God's response to that is, in, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham and says, In you, all the nations or the families will be put back together. So what Paul is saying here is, this was God's plan all along. This wasn't an afterthought. This wasn't a second thought where God's like, man, what am I going to do here? He says, no. 
God saw all the way back in Genesis, and it's fascinating, he says when he preached the gospel to Abraham, that God was going to bless the non-Jewish peoples and bring them to the table of God by faith. Because that's how Abraham got to the table of God. Because Abraham believed, believed and it was counted as righteousness or access to God. Righteousness, access to God. Now, it's going to get better and better. Hang on with me here. Buckle your safety belt because it's going to get really good. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with what? Not just Abraham, but with, he uses a modifier, with believing Abraham. Now, the fact that Paul goes reflexively here to Abraham could mean one of two things, and it might mean both of them. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. It probably means that the people that have followed after Paul in the wake of his ministry there have tried to undermine the legitimacy of Paul and his ministry by citing Abraham and Moses and the law and Torah and Israel's history to try to make it sound like Paul doesn't really know Jewish history. Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. So that's one very likely option that Paul says, oh, my enemies want to talk about Abraham, those that have sought to undermine me and the legitimacy of my ministry want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. But there's another reason. It's not just for that reason. It's because Abraham is so central to the whole of Scripture. In fact, I'll go this far. If you don't understand the story of Abraham, at least in broad outlines, you cannot understand the story of Jesus. It's literally that important. I mean, think about Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which is the very first verse of the entire New Testament. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the first verse of the New Testament. The first verse of the New Testament assumes a basic familiarity and conversancy with people like Abraham and David. So if you don't know the stories of Abraham and David, you're not going to fully appreciate how and why Jesus is the Messiah. You might know that he's the Messiah because you can get the right answer on the test by just you know, leaning over and looking at a friend's paper or you know the right answer, but do you know why it's the right answer? What do math teachers always say? When you put the right answer down, what do, they, what do math teachers show your work? Show your work. I'm certain that if I said to you, okay, who's the savior, who's the hero, you'd all say Jesus. If I said, show your work, how is it that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David? I think some of you would be like, well, I know he is. <laughs> I know the right answer. <laughs> okay, now look, at, okay, go ahead. And the way we show our work is through a few books of the Bible which show the family trees. Exactly. That's the whole point of, of Matthew chapter 1, isn't it? Yeah. The genealogy. Now watch this. This is so exciting. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of Torah are under the, what's our word? Curse. curse, for it is written, and he quotes here. He actually quotes here, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to what? To do them. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27. This is that whole section in Deuteronomy, the latter half of Deuteronomy, the latter three chapters, four chapters of Deuteronomy, called the blessings and the cursings. And what he says here is, okay, so you have a group of people that want to put you under Torah, under the jurisdiction of Torah? Okay, fine. But what does Torah say? Torah pronounces a curse upon those that do not practice most of the things, some of the things, all of the things contained in the book of Torah. Now watch where he goes with this. Verse 11. But that no one is justified by Torah in the sight of God is obvious, is evident for, and then he quotes the well-known passage from Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by the faithfulness of the Messiah. We'll get to that in just a second. 
Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, right? Torah is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And here he's just quoting from Leviticus 18. If you do the law, these are the principles of life. If you do the law, you will live. The problem is, is that not, no one has done the law. Not perfectly, like we talked about in Sabbath school. Now, verse 13, I'm going to spend some real time here. What I want you to do is I want you to be very disciplined about this. We're going to read verse 13, and then I want you to close your Bibles quickly. Okay? Because I don't want you to look at verse 14. Do not look at verse 14, please. Okay, here we go. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Close your Bibles, or don't look at it. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If I, I'm asking you a question, and, and it's not a trap. It's an, I'm asking you an honest question. We just read a passage of Scripture that says, Christ became a curse for us. Because we just talked about how the Torah pronounces a curse on everyone that doesn't continue in all things contained in Torah. Okay? So then the very next thing that Paul says is, Christ became a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting from Deuteronomy. So I'm going to ask you a question. Why did Jesus become a curse for us? Okay, so that complete salvation, that's a good answer. Andrew? Okay, you're a cheater because you've already read ahead. Anybody else? If I ask that question, why did Jesus become a curse for us? Yeah, you would say to save mankind, to redeem mankind, to take my sin, right? Like, you kind of know that you're being set up here a little bit, but 99% of Christians, if you ask them the question, why did Jesus, did Jesus become a curse for us? They would say yes, and you say why? And they would say so that we could be saved, so that we could spend eternity with Him, so that we could go to heaven, or some variation of some sort of cosmic big plan that usually revolves around my personal salvation. That's not the answer Paul gives, and Andrew knew it. Did you read ahead, Andrew? You just knew, because you're a good man. He went to arise. He went to arise. Why did Jesus become a curse for us? Look at how Paul answers this question. It's very unlike the way that 99.9% .9 of Christians would answer the question. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse of Torah, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the... Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we all might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Andrew's exactly right. If we were to say, Paul, why did Jesus become a curse for us? He would say, oh, so that the blessing of God, the blessing that God gave in and to Abraham would spread to the whole world. That's his answer. So notice our temptation is to become very privatized and personal and internal. Oh, Jesus became a curse so that I could be saved. Okay, now that's a very modern, Western way of answering that question. Paul's way of answering that question is, Christ became a curse so that the good news could go to the world. Not just to Jewish peoples, but to all different kinds of peoples. And, and it's important to recognize, Paul is not introducing something innovative here, or something novel. Paul has already shown us in Genesis 12 and 15 that this was the plan all along. The plan all along was for the gospel to go to the world. Right? In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now we come into a slightly complicated section, and we'll see how we navigate it. Verse 15, brothers and sisters, I speak in the manner of men. Let me use an illustration, he says. Though it is only a man's covenant, right? We can imagine a covenant or a will. A will. Uh, if that will is confirmed, no one can annul it, no one can 
um, delegitimize it and no one can add to it. So an easy way to understand this is like a last will and testament. If your uh, parents leave you an inheritance or if your uncle leaves you some resources, right? And that's in there. It's, it's in there by promise. It's in there by um, potential. But if you die, you're obviously not going to get that. But if your uncle dies or if your parents die, you then get the thing that was bequeathed to you by them. No one can come in post facto after the fact and say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I think I should get the Lamborghini. I think I, think I should get the house. I think I should. This is Paul's point. Once the, the covenant has been sealed or ratified, in this case, by the death of the person that was bequeathing or, or leaving you something, nobody can come in and do that. It's ratified. Okay, so Paul's going to make a slightly... It's not complicated, but just follow it here. He says, let me use an illustration. If somebody dies, or if, if there's a covenant that's confirmed, nobody can add to it, nobody can disannul it. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his... Now the Greek word here is sperma. Sperma, which is the word for seed, which is why most translations render this seed. But it can be translated variously seed or even descendants, but probably the best translation in this context is family. Family, which remember is the very question that we're asking here. How do we get access to the family of God, to the table of God? So I'm going to usually translate that as family, okay, with maybe a couple exceptions. Now to Abraham and his family were the promises made. By the way, is that historically accurate? Yes. Yeah, right, because he said to you and your descendants I give this land. Okay? Sperma is the Greek word there. Now, to Abraham and his family were the promises made. He does not say, and to families, as of many, but to one. And to your family, who is Christ? Now, that's a big idea that we're going to circle back around to in just a second. But here he is suggesting that in some important representative and collective sense, Christ sums up the family of Abraham. Okay? So far, so good? This is absolutely amazing, so hang on. Uh, verse 17, And that this is, I say, that the law, Torah, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Okay, now this is where people get a little lost, but I'm going to make it super easy. I put up here on the screen for you the basic sequence that Paul is describing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, it's so simple, but you can get lost sometimes in Paul's language. Here's what he says. He said, God made a promise to, what's his name? Abraham. More than 400 years later, God gave the Torah, or the law, to the descendants of Abraham on Mount Sinai. So far, so good? And then he says, all of this is pointing to faith, or I'm going to insert a word here. I think you'll like this. Not just faith, but faithfulness. Okay, so this is the sequence. We can make it, you could do it in a lot of different ways, but we're just going to say Abraham, Torah, Messiah. That's it. That's the sequence. Abraham first, there were promises made. What were the promises? It boiled down to two basic ideas land and descendants. And then after that, 400 years later, God to the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, gave them the Torah. So far, so good. Yeah? Now, here's the, here's the point that he's going to make. He's going to say, whatever happened at Torah, whatever happened at the law, whatever happened at Sinai, and we'll talk about what that is, but he says, whatever it was, one thing we can be for sure, it can't undo or add to what happened back with Abraham, because God already made a covenant and confirmed it. 
Right? Just like your uncle. When he died and he left you something, nobody can come in retrospectively and change that around. So God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham entered into that covenant. So Paul's point is very simple. Whatever is happening at Sinai, whatever happened at the, the Sinai with the law and Moses and all that, fine. But that cannot stand in tension with or undo the promise that God had already made and confirmed. So far, so good? So God's not double-talking here. He's not saying, hey, I'll make a deal with you, and then on the side I'll make a little different deal with you over here. No. No, 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 no. God made a promise to Abraham. He then later gave his law, his codified Torah, the law, to the descendants of Abraham. And Paul's point is simply this. Whatever happened at Sinai doesn't undo what happened in the Mesopotamian desert with Abraham. So far, so good? Okay. Now, you guys are along for the ride, and we're having a great time. Verse 17. And this, the, we've already read this verse, but now hear it again. And this I say, that Torah, which was 430 years later, later than what? Promise. The promise to Abraham, cannot annul the covenant. What covenant? Promise. The promise to Abraham, very good, that was confirmed before by God, that it should make the promise of no effect. So whatever happens here at Torah can't undo what happened back here. So far, so good? So now that's going to raise an obvious question for any Jew to whom Paul was writing, and especially to those in Galatia that were being now agitated by Jewish-leaning people. Whoa, 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 then. What does the law do then? What's the purpose of the law? What do we need the law for at all if it was all done back here? That's exactly where Paul's going to go. By the way, that's one of the ways you can be sure that you're following any person's writing, or in this case, Paul's writing, if you can anticipate the questions, you're probably following their stream of thought. If you ever are reading Paul and you're like, whoa, that just came out of nowhere. No, 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 no. You're just misinterpreting him. Because Paul is usually very sequential. Yeah, he does have some, you know, sort of diversions that he goes down. But generally, you can anticipate where he is going to go. Okay, so here we go. We're in verse 18. For if the inheritance is of Torah, it is no longer by promise. That makes sense. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Verse 18. Now another slightly difficult section. So all he's saying in this section is, whatever happened at Sinai can't underdo what happened there with Abraham in the desert. Verse 19. What purpose then does Torah serve? <laughs> this is the question that everybody that was, you know, listening to this letter being read, everybody is sitting there becoming anxious and agitated, saying, yeah, but Paul, what about Torah? especially those that were inclined toward the Jewish way of thinking or were themselves maybe Jews. Yeah, but what about Torah? You can get a very similar reaction if you're talking to Seventh-day Adventists about grace and about mercy and about the goodness of God and about the assurance of salvation. And they'll say, yeah, but what about the Sabbath? You can almost feel people get like a little like, yeah, but, but what, about, what about food? If people just like they want to talk about, okay, fine, let's talk about that. So Paul says, what about the law? Verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgression, because of law breaking, until the family should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now that appointed by angels in the hand of a mediator is a reference to Sinai. That's just a, Jewish, a very Jewish way of saying that this happened at Sinai. Okay? Verse 20. Now, this is actually something that Matt said in our Sabbath school class. It was really quite clever. Matt, the cameraman. Verse 20 is difficult, and almost no scholar is 100% sure about what Paul is saying in verse 20, so I'm going to tell you what I think it is, and we'll move along quickly. But Matt actually said something in our Sabbath school that was really smart. 
he said that an, a covenant or an agreement is not for one party. Right? Like a covenant assumes another party. An agreement assumes another party. A contract assumes another party. And so what Paul says in verse 20 is a little complicated, but it's actually kind of sensical. He says, now a mediator does not mediate for one, but God is one. Right? This makes sense, right? You don't hire anybody. You don't, you don't go in and say, hey, I need a mediator. Oh, who are you meeting, mediating with? Myself. <laughs> My wife will sometimes say, you know, I'm debating whether or not. I say, who are you debating with? She says, myself. I say, who's winning? <laughs> who's winning that debate? Right? So what Paul says here is, a mediator is not required for one party, but God is one. And people say, well, what exactly does Paul mean here? I think it's a suggestion, a subtle suggestion about the plurality or the Trinitarian nature of God. That within God's own unity, there is a plurality of beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, now verse 21. Is the law against the promises of God? What's the answer to that question? No. Let's use our, our screen here again. Is what God did at Sinai against the promise that He made to Abraham? What's the answer to that question? No, it is not. Certainly not, Paul says. In the Greek, it's no, no. It's the double. No, no. And this is translated variously, certainly not, or God forbid, or no way, Jose. Right? However you want to translate it. For if there had been a Torah given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. Okay, verse 21 is incredible, and here's what Paul is saying. If God could have given a Torah by which we could get access to the family of God, to the table of God, well, then He would have done it. He would have done it. If God could have saved us by Torah, He would have done it. I mean, it would have saved Jesus a lot of heartache. Remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He prays not once, not twice, but three times, Father, let this... Cut pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. And then he prays it a second time. Father, let this cup pass from me. And then he prays it a third time. Father, let this cup pass from me. Here's a question. Why didn't God answer that prayer? Why didn't God get him out of that situation? Because there was no answer. There was no other way. This is the way. And what Paul is saying here is, look, 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 look. If God could have saved by Torah, he would have done it. If he would have saved by Torah, he would have done it. Right? But he couldn't. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Torah says if you don't continue in all the Torah, well, then you don't pass the test. Okay, we're getting down toward the end here. Um, verse 21 again, is the law against the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if there had been a Torah given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. But the scripture has confined all under what? Sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? This is the other way. You can basically say it like this. Torah and sin sealed off every other option. Torah and sin sealed off any other way that mankind could come into a right relationship with God. So there was only one way that it could happen. And that's by the Messiah's faithfulness. Jesus had to come. See, the punchline is absolutely incredible of chapter 3. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Okay, now let's see what I've got up here. So we could say it like this. The law or Torah, look at the screen here, looked like it got in the way of God's promise to Abraham. But the big problem there is, is that that's also getting in the way of God's promises to the nations. Because remember, God's promise to Abraham was that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So it looks like law is going to thwart God's promises. 
Well, we should maybe just make the simple observation that the problem was not with Torah. The problem wasn't with God's law. The problem was with the people that received God's law. And that's the story of the Old Testament, basically, a story of insularity and insubordination. And before you get a little pious and a little, you know, proud, that's your story too. It's the story of insularity and insubordination, right? And rebellion. And so Torah was not broken. The people that received Torah was broken. Now, watch where this goes. This is absolutely incredible. Before faith came, verse 23, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law, or Torah, was our babysitter. Some say guardian, some say tutor. What you, any other translations? Our master, schoolmaster. It just means basically the person who studies the young children. The, the, the person who takes young children and teaches them the rudiments of how to eat and how to spell and how to write and basic arithmetic. Okay? So it says, Therefore the law was our babysitter to bring us to the Messiah, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer in need of a babysitter. Okay, look at the screen here. So, in his book, Justification, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite New Testament theologians, says this about this, this section. God always intended that his purposes would be accomplished through faithful Israel. That was always his point. Right? That has now happened. This is the punchline of Paul's argument. That has now happened. God has been... God has... Israel has been faithful to God, but Israel has shown up in the life of a single person, Israel's faithful representative. Jesus becomes Israel. By the way, just a reminder, remember that the term Israel was a term that was originally applied in Genesis 32 to who? Who was called Israel? Jacob. So the original term Israel was applied to a single man who gained a spiritual victory with Yahweh. It only then began to be broadened out and became to be the nation of Israel. But Jesus shows up and becomes, like Jacob of old, one who wrestled with God and who overcame. His name was Israel. And so the point that Wright makes here is absolutely incredible. What Paul is saying is, God has still kept his promise to bless the world through Israel, but Israel is not a nation of insular and insubordinate people, including myself and yourself, and those that are literal genealogical descendants of Abraham, Israel is now Jesus. Israel is Jesus. So Jesus sums up Israel and everyone else. He's not only Israel, Jesus is also the second Adam, which Paul doesn't get into here, but he does in other places. The word Adam, of course, meaning mankind. He's the second Adam. So he's perfectly faithful as Israel. He was a Jew. He was circumcised. In fact, when you go read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew takes great pains, literary pains, to make it very clear that Jesus was literally retracing the steps of national Israel. And, and he makes this point over and over again. A man named Joseph has dreams, and they go into Egypt. They remain in Egypt for a time. They come out of Egypt. When he comes out of Egypt, uh, they cross through the Red Sea. Jesus went through the waters of baptism. He goes to Mount Sinai. There's all of these points of connection where Jesus is retracing the history of national Israel and literally fulfilling for Israel what they had failed to fulfill in the wilderness and in their history. Okay, so... Let's read now Galatians. Let's remind ourselves of what we looked the last time we were together. We're almost done here. Galatians 2, 19 to 21. Let's just remind ourselves of this passage. Remember Paul said this? It's a well-known passage. Paul says, let me explain it like this. I'm reading from the Kingdom New Testament. 
through the law, through Torah, I died to Torah so that I might live to God. I had to die to my old way of reading and understanding Torah so that I might live to God's way of understanding reading and Torah, which is that Jesus was the point of the Old Testament. He was always the point. Then Paul says, famously, I have been crucified with the Messiah. Look at me though, I'm alive, biologically alive. I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm moving, I'm thinking. I am alive, but it isn't me, it's the who. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life that I do still live in the flesh right now, I live within the faithfulness, the pistis, of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, even back in Galatians 2, was hinting at the fact that we are incorporated into Messiah. When Jesus died on the cross, he's saying, I died on the cross. And he even says, that, now this is a point that he doesn't make here, but he makes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When Jesus died on the cross, the whole world died on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is the point he makes. It's absolutely incredible. So there's this idea of incorporation and of representation. Not, for us, as we often do, of privatization. Like, oh, it's just me and my personal relationship with God. That's not the way that he saw it. So, um, I'm going to skip over that. Oh, yeah, let's not skip over it. So, this is right again, second second and final quotation from right here in Justification. He says, in other words, this is what Paul is saying here. If he, This is basically what he was saying to Peter when he rebuked him there at the end of Galatians 2. Peter, you don't need to worry about those people who have come from James, the heavy sevies. You don't need to worry about them. They don't know what time it is. They think it's still nighttime, but it's actually daytime now. They think it's still nighttime and that you need the candles of Torah by which to see your way through the darkness. Yeah, but Torah has now come in flesh. Torah has come. We've seen now what Torah looks like. The living, breathing, healing Torah. They think you're still a young child who needs looking after. You, they think you need a babysitter. Whereas you are grown up. And you are now fully and completely a mature child of God. And you Galatians, the agitators who have been troubling you, they're wanting to drag you back into the nighttime to get you to light those candles when the sun has risen and is pouring light all around the world. I mean, this is a great analogy, like lighting candles in the middle of the day. Yeah, yeah, a candle can be extremely bright, by the way. If you're in total darkness, like in a cave or a cavern, and you light a candle, it casts an astonishing amount of light. But if you light a candle in a room, it casts essentially no light. And if you go stand out in the bright day and you, put, you light a candle, well, you can just imagine how foolish that would look, right? Like, you got your little candle and you're, you're making your way down a mountain trail, you know, somewhere in, in the middle of a Colorado bluebird day. And people are like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah I just want to make sure I don't lose my way here. <laughs> right? This is, the, this is what's happening. They're going back to those rudiments and those rubrics that were given to them in darkness. But now that Jesus has come and has been the living, enfleshed embodiment of Torah, he's saying, we don't, the candle... We can blow it out. The babysitter, we can say, hey, thank you so much for your service, but I'm a grown man now. I'm a grown woman now. I've learned my... Now, well, this is where you know, sloppy exegesis or sloppy interpretation will say, oh, now that the babysitter is gone, we can just live wild and woolly and however we want. No, no, no. The reason that you don't need the babysitter anymore, babysitter anymore is that you've learned the principles that the babysitter taught you. You've learned how to spell, how to eat, how to go to the bathroom by yourself. You don't revert back. At age 18, you don't, you know, start pooping your pants again and like spreading food all over your face. No, you've learned those lessons. You now move on from them. And that's the point. We don't need to go back to a babysitter. So I'm going to close here by reading Galatians 3 um, in the Kingdom New, uh, New Testament, just as we did the last time we were together. Now notice that the word faith or pistis is rendered as faithfulness here, and it's better. 
It's even better rather than just faith, because faith can make us instantly think of the privatized, personalized faith that we exercise. But what's primarily uh, on Paul's mind here is that faithfulness to Torah has arrived in Messiah. So here's what he says. Before this faithfulness arrived, we were kept under guard by the law in close confinement, right? Just as you do with a little child. You keep an eye on them at all times. Until the coming of faithfulness should be revealed. Thus the law was like a babysitter for us, looking after us until the coming of the Messiah, so that we might be given covenant membership or family membership on the basis of faithfulness. Now, I know you're going to give me the right answer, but whose faithfulness? Jesus. Yeah, Messiah's faithfulness. That's his whole point. That we get access to the table of God, not by the keeping of the various rudiments of Torah, because that would be to light a candle in the middle of the day. We get access because faithfulness has come. God has shown us in Christ what faithfulness looks like. But now, faithfulness has come. We are no longer under the rule of the babysitter. For you are all children of God through faith in the Messiah, Jesus. You see, every one of you has been baptized into the, that has been baptized into the Messiah has put on the Messiah. Right? Because baptism is an intelligent decision, an intelligent free will decision that's made by a person who has enough intellectual understanding to comprehend the decision that they're making, just like marriage. This is why, and I'm, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not making a big sort of universal statement here, because I think there are circumstances in which young people can be baptized and it can be positive. By young, I mean under the age of, say, 12. I have seen those circumstances. I myself have occasionally baptized people that are that young. But with my own children, I strongly encouraged them to make their decision for Jesus toward the latter end of their teen years, because a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or an 11-year-old or an 8-year-old just doesn't know what the nature of the decision that they're making is. It would be the equivalent of an 11-year-old getting married. Now, it, you could do it, and it might work out, and in ancient times, you know, when you didn't have this, you know, abomination called adolescence, people, people could grow into, you know, a mature adult-like relationship. I mean, when people are living to be only 40, you had to get started a little earlier. Right? So, so, this is why I strongly encouraged Jabel and Landon to be baptized. Jabel, how old were you when you were baptized? 16. And Landon was? No, no, no. He was 18. 18. And, and if they, listen, if, Jabel used to pester me all the time about getting baptized. When he was, from when he was, I make appeals and evangelistic meetings, he'd always come. Always come forward. Dad, I don't want to get baptized. He was asking to get baptized when he was like 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I was like, yes, but not now. Not now. I wanted them to understand the nature of the decision they were making. So this is what he's saying here. If you've been baptized in the Messiah, if that was an intelligent, scripturally based decision, you have literally clothed yourself in the Messiah's faithfulness. Now, can an 8-year-old understand this? Maybe, maybe. Um, not most of them, right? But at, at 17, 18, when you've dealt with the, with the temptations of the world and the hormones are moving and the pressure and all that, you now know what it means, at least at a preliminary level, to be a follower of Jesus. There is no longer, Paul says, and he just takes three quick brushstrokes here and just removes the major demarcations that existed in first century Judaism or in the first century world. There is no longer Jew or Greek Right? That was a cultural distinction. That was a theological distinction. That was, there's no slave or free. That was not only an economic distinction. That was also an ontological distinction because slaves were less than. Slaves were like the oil of the ancient world, the electricity of the ancient world. They were the power source that you built cities and empires and pyramids with. They weren't people. They were a resource that you exploited in order to build your giant kingdom. And so Paul says, not anymore. 
There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. And that's in quotations here because, of course, there are still biological distinctions, right? The protestations of modernity notwithstanding. But he does make a really great point here. This is not only a biological distinction, it was a sociological distinction, but it is important. One fascinating little point, and I'll only say one word about this. Oh, there we go, an hour again. I'll only say one point about this. One of the problems with the male-female distinction, particularly as it was understood in the Jewish world of the time, was that the right of access to covenant membership was circumcision, which is uniquely male. And what, what happens in Christ is that is now done away with so that men and women unique, both have identical points of access in. Now, of course, by representation, the family was also brought in. But in Paul's day, and even before Paul's day, this was being used as a tool of manipulation and of coercion and of control over women. And so for Paul to say this, there's no longer male and female. It's a fascinating point because he's saying it's no longer males that have an inner you know, a, a new angle or a little closer or a little more proximate because of circumcision and their maleness. So that's the way, that's not the way too. And then he says, you are all, what's our word? One in the Messiah Jesus. And if you belong to the Messiah, you are whose family? You're Abraham's family and you stand to inherit the promise. And I just put there so you would know the promise of Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. And so here is the promise to bless all nations through Abraham. So here's the final slide, and you've made it. Believer, this is what Paul is saying. This is the summary of the whole chapter. Believer, you are a child of God. By the way, the language here is often gender neutral. It says son, but it's very often child. Believer, you are a child of God with full access to his table because of Jesus the Messiah's faithful unto death love. That's how you get access to the table. Amen? Amen? Okay, so that gets us through Galatians 3, and I just want to respond by saying, I accept the Messiah's faithfulness in the place of my attempts at faithfulness that always end up as unfaithfulness. Anybody else want to receive the Messiah's faithfulness right now, a new, a fresh? Yeah, me too. Me too. We don't get access to the table of God, the family of God, by our own lighting of candles and being fastidious about... No, we get access by Messiah's faithfulness. And in Messiah, the promise of Abraham is fulfilled, and it's amazing. Father in heaven, we respond this morning to your promise, the initial embryonic Abrahamic promise to bless all the nations through this covenant that you made. And not just that you made, but that you kept in Christ. Father, help us to live in the light of that Help us to understand who we are, who everyone else is, and how we all collectively get access to your family and to your table. Father, in light of that, help us not to look down our long nose at anyone else. And Father, help us not to look up at any other mediators, because there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so, Father, help us to see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and the table is a great big giant table that everyone has access to, that is clothed with Messiah. And we receive that right now by faith. Amen and amen.